0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Well, reports of my death were greatly exaggerated. I was praying for it, but I'm still here. Pretty much over it, there's just a little congestion, but you know how it is in Houston during the summer, you just have congestion anyway. So I appreciate everybody's prayers, and um, so we're ready to go again. I had to get well because I'm leaving on vacation a week from tomorrow, and you can't go on vacation when you're sick. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. Scripture teaches that if we are uh, out of fellowship as a result of sin in the life, then uh, the solution is simply a grace-based solution to Uh, confess our sins and if scripture says if we confess our sins God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and so we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship ready to concentrate focus on the study of God's word so let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer then I'll open in prayer let's pray Father, we're grateful that we can be here this evening. We're thankful that we have the opportunity to study your Word. Father, your Word is an anchor for our soul. It gives us certainty and surety about uh, the circumstances of life, takes our attention off of ourselves and off of our circumstances, and puts our attention on you and your provision, your solution. And Father, as we study your Word this evening, we pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would make it clear to us Challenge us with the things that we study that we might come to a greater understanding of the nature of the body of Christ and the way in which we encourage and strengthen one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are, we've been studying in Hebrews. So just by way of reminder and re- just a uh, review. The last two or three lessons in Hebrews, we've looked at this verse in Hebrews 10.24 that begins with this command to consider uh, one another in order to stir up love and good deeds. As I've pointed out in the past, the verb here is a present active uh, subjunctive in the first person plural, which in the Greek has the idea of an imperative. This is a command, not a suggestion even though it is expressed in a way that's a little uh less strong than a than a straight military command, it still has that idea that we are to do something. We are to consider, or we must consider, we should consider. Uh, this is not an option. This is something that is part of our spiritual life as members of the body of Christ. And the focus is on one another. Now this is one of numerous commands in the scripture ...that are directed to the believer in relation to responsibilities we have within the body of Christ. The body of Christ is formed of every person who has put their faith alone in Christ alone. When we believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, at that instant, the Scripture says that we are uh, baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. And that is a one-time action that takes place at the instant that we're saved... It's not experiential. It's not something that we feel. We don't get the rosy glow. We don't uh, get all emotional. Uh, it is a uh, forensic action or uh, judicial action that God the Father causes to take place. You, actually, all three members of the Trinity are involved. God the uh, Son uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection and to place us into his body so that we are baptized into one body, as 1 Corinthians 12.13 says, and as Galatians 3.27 says, that we are baptized into Christ. And so we are all equally members of the body of Christ. We all get there the same way by trusting in Christ as our Savior. Nobody has anything going for them that somebody else doesn't have. But as members of the family of God, as members of those who are in Christ— we have certain responsibilities to one another, and so we begin looking at this uh, several lessons back. Of course, last week I missed because of the flu, but uh, we'll just review the first. I think we've made it through the first four points, so we'll review those briefly. The Greek word is allelon, which means one another. The idea is that Members of the congregation have certain responsibilities to others. Now, that doesn't mean, I always have to put this caveat in here, that doesn't mean that you have this, that an individual believer has the same involvement in the life of every other believer. That's just not possible. We can only have, really get to know other people, a small sphere of individuals, uh, in any, um, In any kind of uh, relationship, we all have certain people that we know with whom we have a fairly intimate involvement. We have spouses, family members, and extremely close friends. Then there's another circle of intimacy that are people we know. Perhaps we see them every day. We work with them. We know more about them. Um, as it were, but we don't necessarily ha- have the open or the intimate confidences with those people that we do with others. And then there are those that we see on a somewhat casual basis. We see them on a weekly basis, maybe two or three times a week, maybe a church. Maybe we've known them for a long time, but we really don't get too deeply involved in, in their lives or they in our life. And then there are others who we know just by name or by, uh, <coughs> general recognition. So you don't take somebody who's out there in a greater sphere that you barely know or whose name you hardly uh, remember and suddenly treat them as if they're someone that you know on a deep, intimate level like your, your best friend. And people allow us into their lives on for various reasons. And some people at some times don't want others involved in their life. They just put up a wall of privacy. People are different. Some people are very private. Uh, It takes them a long time to open up to other people. They just want to come into a congregation and sit back in the corner back there like with Gene. You know, Gene doesn't want to know anybody, uh, never talks to anybody, Uh, somebody like that that's a real wallflower. Um, (laughs) But seriously, there are people who are like that. They just want to come in anonymity and sort of put their toe in the water, as it were, until they get adjusted, and then they'll stick their foot in, and then maybe after a year or two, they might uh, start getting to know other people, come to some of the family nights or something like that. It just takes some people time. And you have to give people the freedom to be different. I remember when I was in seminary, it often struck me that, that the view that a lot of Christians had was that one size fits all. And that everybody was supposed to do things a certain way. You'd have professors who would talk about how uh, they would have personal Bible study with with their wives. And it was like everybody ought to do it like I do it. But there are a lot of different people, a lot of different personalities and circumstances, and not everybody can do it that way. And there are other people who are very outgoing, and they like to meet people, and they're very open, uh, out, uh, outgoing people, but other people just aren't. So these commands toward one another are really, as I've stated before, are expressions of how we carry out the broader command of of loving one another, and they give different instances, and so... We shouldn't understand the word one another to necessarily mean every single believer you run into in life. Now, in some sense, there we may run into somebody who we hear has a problem, and so we want to encourage them, things of that nature. But for the most part, there are a lot of people that, to get in their face, as it were, with uh, a level of intimacy that they haven't really opened themselves up to is a really that makes them uncomfortable. It's a matter of violating their privacy in the good sense. I want to say something about that term because when you look at the Scripture, this we have this idea of the privacy of the priesthood, the privacy of the believer, and we have to recognize that out of just what I would call just good manners and good sense. Whatever anybody is, you don't get, in, shouldn't get involved in other people's lives and other people's business when there's not a, a warrant for that. And what I mean by a warrant for that is that if they haven't allowed you to be in in their life at that level of intimacy, otherwise we're making somebody feel very uncomfortable. We're putting our our nose in somebody else's business when it doesn't have any any reason to be there but on the other hand if you have somebody who is a friend you've known them for a long time and you see that there is something going on in their life to ask them about it or to say something to them uh, in privacy where you just say you know I've noticed that there's there seems to be a problem you seem a little different or making some observation like that then it doesn't It's not violating somebody's privacy. You know, some people get the idea that if you even say hello to somebody you don't know, that that has somehow breached some great spiritual truth. And that is just not the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. It's a family. And when you see, when you get up in the morning, well, that's probably not a good illustration, because some of you just aren't morning people. But, you know, after you get past the normal coffee, after you've had your third cup of coffee, and you get up in the morning and you come into the kitchen and there's one of your children or a sibling, a brother or sister, uh, you don't just ignore them. You shouldn't ignore them. You should say, hello, how are you, what's going on, what's your day? You, know, you talk to them like a family member. It's somebody you you know and you care about. So the body of Christ is is based on certain relational Principles, And it calls on, for some people, a certain amount of maturity to handle that because, unfortunately, we have too many people in in our society and in our culture who've grown up in, I hate the word, but for lack of a better word, dysfunctional families where they just never learn good manners. They never learn how to talk to people. They never learn how to express uh, legitimate care and concern for other people. And so that's going to be part of their... Uh, their growing process. But the Bible assumes that people know basic standards of good manners and how to, uh, how to have a relationship with somebody without being uh, overly intrusive in their life. So the basic idea in this word is to express the idea of how believers within congregations, within the body of Christ, should treat other believers in that congregation and that would also extend by application to just any other believer someone who's a another member of the body of Christ now the second point was to emphasize the fact that the main command that we have for loving one another is the command i mean the basic command toward one another is to love one another it's expressed 15 times in the new testament john peter and paul each mention this as a command, and as I've stated, each of the other 18 one anothers all, I think, relate to different facets of what it means to love one another. They are descriptions of what that love should look like. Love is an extremely difficult term to define. Uh, I remember over years working on doctrines, working on manuscripts, trying to come up with a definition of love. And if you go to a standard English dictionary, American Heritage Dictionary, Oxford English Dictionary, uh, any of the standard Webster dictionaries, you will find that the primary meaning for love is expressed as an emotion. But that doesn't work. That is a purely human viewpoint Experiential oriented shallow concept of what love is. The Bible it actually comes, doesn't really define love. It pictures love in passages like, uh, like 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 8, uh, 1 through 7 actually. The, that gives a description of the characteristics of the qualities that you have in Uh, in love, you also have other pictures that Jesus uses, stories that he told, like the, uh, story of the Good Samaritan, other pictures that he uses to, to exemplify, illustrate what love is, because it's a, it's a very tough concept to try to just reduce down to, uh, to a definition. And so what we have in the New Testament are various commands addressed to one another, and they show us what the different facets or aspects of love are. And uh, we looked at the main command, John 13, 34 and 35, that this is the new commandment that Jesus gave us, that we love one another as he loved us. The third point we looked at was that we're to encourage one another, and the root word here, we spent a lot of time on this last time looking at Romans 1, First uh, Thessalonians 4 and on into Romans 12 on some of these passages. Uh, encouraging one another has the idea of coming alongside. That's the root meaning of the word. Uh, it has the idea of comforting, encouraging, strengthening, helping someone who provides assistance. The noun form of the verb that's used here is used of the Holy Spirit. The verb here is parakaleo in Romans 1.12, that we are uh Paul says he's encouraged with one another or we're encouraged with one another 1 Thessalonians 4:18 we're to comfort one another parakaleo uh 1 Thessalonians 5:11 therefore comfort each other and edify each other and these words uh indicate that idea that the word kaleo the verb kaleo means to call and the preposition that's prefixed to it is para, meaning alongside or together. So it's the idea of somebody being called alongside or working with somebody to produce something. The noun form is parakletos, which is the noun used of the Holy Spirit as a, usually it's translated comforter. Some translators translations translated encourager. Uh, It has the idea of someone who is an assistant, someone who comes along to help. I think that uh, some translations call it a helper. So all of those ideas uh, come together. So we help each other, uh, and one of the ways that we see this in 1 Thess 4, for example, in uh, 4.18, this follows the section uh, on the rapture, but it's actually talking about Paul's giving the answer of what happens when a believer dies, that we don't grieve like those who have no hope because we believe that Jesus died and rose again and that he's going to come come again. So at the time of physical death, we're to comfort one another with these words. So the focus of comfort here isn't the idea of putting your arm around somebody's shoulder and giving them a hug. Not that there's anything wrong with that, okay? I don't want to... Put that down as if there's something wrong there, but that's not the idea of comfort. Comfort comes from content, not just from warm fuzzies. And, um, I mean, there's really nothing wrong with a warm fuzzy as long as that's not all there is. So we are to comfort one another and, in, and build up or edify one another. Then the fourth point, I think mean, this is what we spent time on the last time, is, um, there we go, that we are members of one another. We looked at uh, uh, two passages in Romans chapter 12. We'll come back and look at Romans 12 again because there's four or five times in Romans 12 that Paul uses the phrase for one another, the word for one another. So we are members of one another, and that shows that there's an interconnectedness within the body of Christ. And as I pointed out last time, this is, A different idea for most Americans, as Americans, part of the American consciousness is that we are fiercely independent. We are going to carve out our own destiny, or at least that's the historical view that most Americans have. Uh, Now, most Americans think that the government should do that for them, but that's not what made America great. What made America great was people who had this, this fierce independence that they were going to go out into the frontier and their life was going to be what they made it, recognizing that it was up to their volition, up to their responsibility to make, make it or break it. It was no, not anybody else's responsibility to take care of them. Their job was to uh, carve out their own destiny by the strength of their own will and the power of their own um, labor. But the Bible says that This kind of fierce individualism isn't a primary characteristic within the body of Christ. We are members of one another. We're not just a bunch of isolated uh, Christian islands out there going it alone. Okay, now that brings us to point five. Again, we're back in Romans chapter 12. So turn with me to Romans 12. We'll be in Romans 12 for this point and the next point. Did I cover five last time? I couldn't remember. I didn't cover five. Okay, good. At least the memory's not going yet. Okay. Romans 12, as I pointed out last time, is a shift from the teaching content of Romans 1 through 11 to drawing out the implications and application of the doctrine that's developed in those first 11 chapters. And so we come down to verse verse uh, 10, and <clears throat> 10 as well as in... Um, 16, we're going to see this phrase for one another. But let's look at the context. Verse 9 reads in the New King James, Let love be without hypocrisy. Now, it's a strange construction because there's actually no verb in the Greek. They're just nouns. But there is a... The verb's left out. It's implied there that this is a... A command because of the uh, because of the context, and so once again it's talking about love it tells us that in the first sentence that's the topical sentence for the paragraph that goes down to about verse uh, twenty one so it's going to talk about what love looks like, like that is genuine uh, biblical christ like love. Uh, it, it abhors what is evil. And it clings to or focuses that which is good, that which has intrinsic good. Then the next verse gives us another aspect to it. Be kindly affectionate uh, to one another. And that's a pretty decent translation of the Greek. It's kind of an odd verb there based on the, it's the only time we have a a word of this type in the Greek. It's a compound word of storge plus uh, phileo. A storge is the kind of, uh, or the verb storgeo is, expresses a kind of love that a stork shows for its, for its, um, the baby birds, baby storks in the nest, and covers over them with his wings, takes, uh, with her wings, takes care of them, and so it has that that, uh, that affection that's there, and also the word phileo, or the Greek um, uh, philos, has that same idea, so it expresses this sense of it's not a distant sort of care and concern. It involves a a knowledge, it involves a relationship with a person. So be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and in honor giving preference to one another. So that's really the phrase that I'm looking at on this fifth point, is the second half, is that in honor, uh, we are to give preference to one another. That means that you should put other people first, not be self-absorbed, basically. And there are some people who are so concerned about their own problems, their own difficulties, their own circumstances in life, that it's very hard for them to pull their head up and look around and actually notice that there are other people who have other problems that might even be uh, worse than theirs, and so we are to focus on others and not just have this this self oriented focus that's the product of arrogance, uh, arrogance, and pride. and this relates to the concept of of honor, honoring other people, re- respecting them and caring for them. And so it, it's a focus on uh, other people and putting them first uh, over our own own needs. Years ago, I had several people in my congregation that started the formulation of a doctrine I always refer to as the doctrine of the vampire Christian, one of my favorite doctrines. There, every congregation has a vampire Christian. Now, I don't think ours does, not that I've noticed, but I have had them in the past. Now, think about what a vampire, you, you all have seen your, you know, Bram Stoker, Dracula movies. A vampire only operates at night, right? Can't, can't function during the daytime, during the light. So the first characteristic of the vampire Christian is walks in darkness and not in the light. Doesn't walk in the light of God's word. Walks in darkness, lives in carnality. Second aspect about a vampire is when a vampire looks in the mirror, can't see its own reflection. So when a vampire Christian looks in the mirror of God's word, can't, can't see its own reflection. It always applies to somebody else. It never applies to me because I'm perfect. So a vampire Christian always uh, thinks that the Bible always relates to somebody else. And then a third characteristic is that in order for the vampire to survive, he has to suck all of his nourishment out of some host. And that's what these kind of Christians do, is they come to a congregation wanting to know how that congregation is going to take care of them how that congregation is going to solve their emotional needs, how that congregation is going to uh, minister to them. And then after two or three weeks and nobody says hello, nobody says hi, or they say, well, you know, that's just a cold, stuck up. Uh, They don't really care. And that may not be true at all. Uh, What I often have found as a pastor over the years is the people that that scream the most about a church but not being caring are the people who, who just, it's like they walk into a congregation and they expect everybody to notice them and to immediately walk up to them and say, oh, I'm so sorry, you're so hurting, you've got this problem. And uh, and they expect to get all of that attention because they're walking through life uh, in completely and totally self-absorbed. And the issue in the spiritual life is that we are to take our, our attention and focus completely off of self and put it onto Christ, and because of that, we put it onto others who are also uh, in Christ. So Romans 12.10, we are to give preference to one another. Now that takes us to the sixth point. The sixth point is that we are to have the same mind toward one another. And there's three passages that uh, we can go to here Romans twelve sixteen, Romans fifteen five, and Philippians two, three. And I'm going to take a look at each of those, since we're in Romans twelve already, we're we're there to begin with, and we'll go to fifteen five, and then over to Philippians two three, but the verb that we find in each of these passages is phroneo. And phroneo has the idea of thinking. Sometimes it can be thinking with with discernment, so that has the idea of judging or evaluating. This isn't judging in terms of being. Condemnatory towards somebody, but it's judging in the sense of evaluating some something, evaluating a situation, being able to think through the issues uh, and to think critically uh, means to give one 's mind to something in other words, sometimes it's used to have the idea of focusing on something or set your mind on something so the idea it 's a thought word that we are to have the same kind of thinking now when it comes to the body of christ if um, we just had the number of people that were in this room it would be pretty difficult on our own to think the same way about things because we're all different we come from different backgrounds we have all kinds of different ideas and opinions on things but when you have the word of god and the word of god is the ultimate authority then we can come together and when we start with the Word of God, we can then work out from the Word of God and we can come to learn that there's only one opinion. That's God's opinion. And what you often find is when people have problems and difficulties, when you have personal problems that occur often in a marriage, and 90% of the time when I have gotten involved in marriage counseling situations, one or both are completely disoriented to the authority of God in their life. And what they really want from the counselor is validation or absolution. They've made their decision already. They've decided who's right and who's wrong. And they want you as the pastor or counselor to come in and validate their, their opinion and they want you to rescue them from the other person and to straighten out the other person. And that's at about 98% of the time. And it's just a basic problem of a lack of authority orientation. And I can't tell you how many times in marriage counseling situations I've had to address one or both and say, you know, until you decide to submit to the Word of God, you're never going to be happy, you're never going to solve any problems in your life, you're never going to have uh, any kind of decent family life or married, marital life because you're just in rebellion. And you don't want to hear what God has to say, even though you've wrapped it up in all kinds of uh, language that makes it sound like you're just so concerned about spiritual things. And that happens. That's why we disagree with each other, ultimately, is because somebody is off base in terms of the Word of God. So when we have this command to be of the same mind to one another... The passages relate to humility, and humility always, when it comes to the Christian life, humility always relates to subordination to the authority of God, always. That's why Jesus said that Moses was the Meekest man in the Old Testament. Some translations get it correct and translate the most humble man in the Old Testament. And <clears throat> often we think of humility or meekness as some somebody who's being taken advantage of, somebody who's just you know they're they're fairly wimpy and people can push them around. Moses wasn't that way. Moses was trying to herd two and a half million Jews through disobedient, rebellious Jews through the wilderness. He wouldn't have lasted two days if, he, if meek or humble meant pushover. It means somebody who is oriented to the authority of God. And what Jesus is saying is that nobody in the Old Testament was more oriented to the authority of God than Moses and because Moses was under the authority of God that made him a picture an example of humility and of of meekness so that's what humility is that's how we can be of the same mind is because we both subordinate our wishes our opinions our ideas to God's opinion which is expressed expressed in the bible so the first ver- first verse to look at is the one we have in this chapter Romans 12:16 Be of the same mind toward one another. In other words, think the same way. And that same way is, we could paraphrase and say, think in terms of biblical truth toward one another. Think in terms of biblical, biblical virtues toward one another. And then Paul is going to explain what he means by that. Do not set your mind on high things, In other words, being uh, inappropriately ambitious or competitive, but associate with the humble. The, The contrast there between the high things and the humble, when we understand humility to be... Uh, authority, orientation toward God, then setting yourself on high things is the idea of arrogance or pride where we're trying to do that which is uh, what we want to do as opposed to submitting to God. But we are to associate with those who are submitted to the authority of God. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, do not be wise in your own opinion. Once again, Self-absorption, arrogance, pride. Don't focus on yourself and don't be uh, <clears throat> thinking that you're right and others are wrong. Subordinate yourself to the authority of God's word. Now, the next verse is in Romans chapter uh, 15, verse 5. So just turn over a couple of pages or so, depending on the fine print in your Bible, and we'll look at uh, Romans 15, 5. Now Romans 15 is Romans 14 and 15. 15 kind of brings to a conclusion, at least the first five or six verses brings to a conclusion the discussion on the law of liberty and the law of love, dealing with the weaker brother in verse in uh, chapter 14. And and as he wraps up that conclusion, Paul says, beginning in 15.1, we then who are strong, and by that he means mature uh, believers, we who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. In other words, taking into account other people. Didn't we just see a verse on that? Is back in verse uh, uh, verse 10 of chapter 12 that we are to, in honor, give preference to one another. So you're honoring someone who has uh, perhaps a different view, and not making an issue out of something that is a minor thing, and it's not really a major issue. Uh, Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. So one of the criteria is, is this appropriate, and does this lead to the maturity, the edification, the spiritual growth of this other person? And then we have an example. Notice that the example is from Jesus Christ. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written... The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And what this is a reference to is that Jesus Christ could have pleased himself and he could have decided to blast away at the Roman guard that came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He could have uh, completely uh, destroyed the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and, and Pontius Pilate with just a thought. But rather than pleasing himself and taking a path that would bring uh, comfort to himself, he was willing to take on the reproach of sin and the punishment of sin uh, for our sake. So Christ is used as the illustration here of humility. Verse 4, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning. Written before would refer to the... Uh, old testament scriptures that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope confident expectation in the future now verse five now may the god of patience may the god of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to christ jesus okay let's note a couple of things first of all this is expressed as a as a blessing or as a prayer, a wish. May God grant this to you, uh, focusing on two aspects of God's character, uh, patience and comfort, that you be like-minded toward one another. And then the next thing I want to point out is he says, according to Christ Jesus, this is the preposition kata in the Greek, which means according to a standard. So the standard is reiterated is Christ. Who do we look to to learn how we are to carry out this idea of the same mind? We look to Jesus Christ. And then verse 6 says that you may with one mind and one mouth, that's the unity of the body of Christ, glorify the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way... That a body of believers can have real unity is when they're submitted to the Word. Now, we live in an era today that goes back to at least the 1960s, if not the, the, the 50s and maybe earlier, when unity has been promoted at the expense of truth and content. Unity is supposed to be a vacuous sort of contentless thing. We're all just going to share in our uh, emotion and for the sake of having unity, we're going to throw out all conviction of truth, all uh, absolutes in Scripture, and we're just going to have a great big group hug, and we're going to have unity and just all agree so that there's no sense of any kind of disagreement. This is just typical, you know, liberal, superficial thinking that comes out of 19th century uh, religious, liberal ideas that God is the father of everybody and God just wants to love everybody and snuggle up to them and give them a big, warm, fuzzy hug and that that's all we need to get through life. And the Bible doesn't talk about that at all, that it comes out of a purely human viewpoint concept of love in God and uh, 19th century religious liberalism completely rejected the idea uh, that the Bible was the Word of God. It imposed its own concepts on the Bible. Uh, psychoanalyzed, Marxist, uh, s- social gospel ideas. So the Bible says it's different. We have one mind because we have a common basis. We're all going to agree that this is true, and when we agree that everything in this is true and agree on what it says, then we can have unity. Ephesians 4, Paul says it's the unity of the faith. You know, it's the unity of the content of doctrine. That's where we have unity. You don't believe the word of God. You don't believe in what the Bible says. We can't have unity. You need to go. That's what the Bible says. It's not unity at the expense of what the Bible teaches. It's unity on the basis of what the Bible teaches. So we've seen this development here in Romans, <clears throat> Romans 12, that uh, we're to, uh, be as, uh, that this single this same mindedness is related to humility Romans fifteen focuses on Christ as the standard, and that 's related to in, in <clears throat> what Paul says here into what happens at the cross but it 's Philippians chapter two where we really get the full understanding of what that means in terms of single-mindedness or same-mindedness as Christ. So turn over to to Philippians. You have Galatians, Ephesians, um, and then uh, Philippians. Now, Romans was written a long time before Paul wrote Philippians. Philippians was one of the prison epistles that Paul writes after he's made his third, his, uh, third missionary journey, after he goes to Jerusalem and then he... Uh, then he goes to uh, Rome. Uh, Romans was written quite a bit before this, so we've sort of looked at this in terms of a temporal development where Paul stated these same ideas in Romans, but now in Philippians 2, he unpacks the ideas in a little more detail. And he expresses this, uh, the foundation, in the first four verses of Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 2. He draws, he's drawing a, conc- a conclusion. And he sets it up with the therefore. And then he's going to state his assumptions. And his assumptions are expressed in these if clauses that we find in verse 1. And these are expressed as certainties, even though they're expressed through an if clause. So they're understood, they're first class condition, understood. You could even translate it as sense. You normally don't, wouldn't necessarily translate a an if as a sense in a first-class condition, but it does work in some places and gives you the idea. He's saying, therefore, because this is true, because there is consolation in Christ, because there is comfort from the source of love, because there is fellowship, this rapport that believers have with God based on the Holy Spirit and its consequent um, fellowship rapport with other believers, and if there is any affection and mercy. So you have four, four concepts that he sets there as a foundation. Because these things are true, now he gives a command. So these four things are absolutes that we have in Christ, and he gives the command in verse two, fulfill my joy. This is an heiress imperative. It's a second person plural, so that means it's a, it's a y'all. He's addressing the, the, the group congregation as a as a as a single unity but as a as a whole. So he's saying y'all, you know the plural of y'all is all y'all. So he's saying, all y'all fulfill my joy. <clears throat> it's not an option. It is a command. Because it's an aorist imperative, it's indicating its priority. Now, in Greek's kind of a, a little different from English in that in English, tense always refers to time, but in Greek, the tense only has a time dimension in the indicative mood. When it's in an imperative mood or subjunctive mood, it just focuses on what grammarians call aspect or the kind of action. And so when you have a present imperative, it's not talking about doing something continuously. That, see, that, that has uh, or It's not doing something now. It has the idea of aspect is how you do it, or continuously, or this should be a characteristic of your life. And when it's aorist tense, aorist tense is usually a past idea in the indicative, but when it's an aorist imperative, he's he's emphasizing, he doesn't have faced type, so he, that's what he's doing with the grammar. An aorist imperative just says, this should be a priority for you now. Now, in one place you might have a command that's expressed to one group of Christians as a present imperative. And what Paul would be saying, what the writer would be saying to that group is this needs to be a characteristic of your life. Now he may be addressing another group and uses the same verb, but to this other group, they've got a problem because they're not doing it at all. So they need to make it a priority. So, Addressing another group, he may use the same verb, talk about the same thing, but now express it as an aorist imperative. And to that group, he's saying, you need to make this a priority. So these are not contradictory ideas. It just depends on who, on the circumstance of the person that the writers the is writer's addressing. So because there's this problem of divisiveness in the uh, Philippian congregation, he expresses this as an aorist imperative, meaning they need to get their act together and they need to make this a priority to quit being so self-absorbed and to start being, start thinking the same way. We see an example of the divisiveness later on in chapter 4 when he has uh, two women, Eudache and uh, uh, Syneche, who are somehow disagreeing, Euodia and Syneche, and they're having some kind of a, a personal conflict. But here he 's talking to the congregation as he holds, and he says, "You need to be the same minded you need, and that 's further developed as having the same love, so their love is set up as an expression of being what same, having the same kind of thinking, so love is expressed not as an emotion but as part of thinking, part of objective thought, and that 's where Americans tend to run on the uh, rough ground when they're thinking about love is we tend, we, we tend to think that the dictionary uh, has it right, and the dictionary just reflects usage. Most people think that love is an emotion. But the kind of love that God has is related to thinking. God loved the world in such a way that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's not an emotion. It is an action. It is thought. It involved planning. It involved the plan of salvation. It involved, uh, thinking through all the details that needed to be resolved in order for the sin problem to be, to be solved at the cross. So love is a thoughtful concept. We think objectively based on God's word. So Paul says to fulfill his joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, uh, one, um, being of one accord and of one mind. So the idea there in, and then, then he goes into f- verse 3 and he says, Let nothing be done with selfish ambition or conceit. So there's the same contrast we've seen between being self absorbed, focusing on yourself, focusing on your own needs, your own hurts, your own, uh, plans and agenda. Versus focusing on the word of God and the body of Christ and the plan of God. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Now, he's going to explain that. That's not this kind of pseudo-meekness that uh, people often think of. It is thinking, it's, it's the opposite of thinking more highly of yourself, which is the phrase Paul uses in Romans 12. In lowliness of mind, let each person esteem others better than himself. And the concept of esteem there is that same idea we saw of giving honor to one another over in Romans 12. So the key verse there for the one another is that we are to esteem one another better than himself. So it's being of the same mind uh, toward one another. And then verse 4 states, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's not saying just ignore. This isn't some sort of asceticism where you just say, oh, well, I don't need anything. But it's saying don't just focus on me, me, me. It's not all about you. It's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about the plan of God. Now, we get an example of this in verse 5. In verse 5, Paul uh, gives another uh, another command, he says, let this mind be in you, or we could translate that this mentality, this kind of thinking should characterize you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So this sets up our our pattern. This is what Paul was saying over in uh, Romans 15, 5, that we're to think according to Christ. Now, this is how Jesus Christ exhibited humility. Verse 6 describes the uh, eternal person of Christ, says who, that is, the who refers to Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God. Now, that Greek word there is often debated just exactly what, what it means. The concept of form of God, morphe, was a word that was often used in Greek philosophy to refer to an ideal or a... Uh, uh, something, the essence of something. And so when it's used of the form of God, it's he, Paul is saying that Jesus Christ existed in, in the essence of God. He was true God. He was fully God. He had all of the attributes of God, including eternality, and was the eternal second person of the Trinity. But even though he was God, even though he's the creator, even though he has the right to the obedience and the worship of every single creature, rather than emphasizing that and emphasizing his rights as God and saying, well, you know, that's exactly what I deserve, is to be worshipped as God and and to be recognized as God. He did not uh, consider it something to be emphasized, literally, to be equal with God. He's not going to emphasize that, but instead, verse 7, he made himself... Of no reputation. Literally, it has the idea that he humbles himself. He's not going to emphasize who he is or what he or the um, worship that is uh, honestly due him, but rather he takes on the uh, form of a bond servant. He puts himself in the position of having the nature of a servant. He said, I did not come to be served, but to seek and to save that which was lost. So he came as a servant in the likeness of men. He took on full humanity at the incarnation when he was born. And in verse eight, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. How? by becoming obedient to the point of death. See, humility functions through obedience. It is a recognition of authority. Jesus humbles himself under the authority of God the Father and is obedient to the point of taking on the reproach of sin, humbling himself to taking on uh, all of the suffering that came as God the Father punished him, For our sins poured out all of our sin upon him. The very nature of that was completely abhorrent to him. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. So he humbles himself, taking on all of the reproach, all the judgment, all the condemnation upon himself, even to the point of death on the cross. Therefore, the result is that God exalts him. When we put ourselves under the authority of God, God then becomes the one to exalt us. We're not into self-exaltation. And so rather than being self-absorbed, when we become absorbed with God, focused on Christ, occupied with Christ, then the result is that God is the one who elevates us. God is the one who then takes care of the problems uh, in our life. And he is the one who exalts us at the right time just as he will, as he exalted Jesus Christ at the ascension with the result that in the future every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord so <clears throat> we are to be of the same mind to one another has to do with humility that's that illustration we're to have the same kind of thinking which is humility that Jesus Christ had on the cross and that brings us to our seventh point. Seventh point is we are to build up uh, one another. Romans fourteen nineteen. Back to uh, that passage, that section. Therefore, let us pursue. And there, the idea there is an imperative. That's why I've inserted the exclamation point after the uh, verb pursue. This is a command for us. Let us pursue the things which make for peace. And the things which one, by which one may edify one another. So let's just look at the context. We've just got about five more minutes. Uh, let's just look at the context so we pick that, pick up the, what Paul is talking about there in Romans 14, uh, verse 19. Again, this is a section dealing with the problem of a weaker Brother, Now, a weaker brother is an immature brother, a brother who may, another believer, who may uh, <clears throat> have problems with something that is perfectly legitimate to be engaged in. And this can Im- involve any number of different activities. Many cultures have different taboos. Many religious groups have different taboos where they say you just can't do this and be holy or you can't do that and be holy, and it has nothing to do with the Bible uh in the old te- uh in the ancient world uh many times there were problems with for example in with the corinthians they had uh meat that had been sacrificed or offered to a god in the pagan temple and then it would be sold in the meat market and then uh people would go down there and buy the meat and it was some of the better meat because it had been offered to the god or goddess and then they would bring it home to eat it. And there were some people who this bothered their conscience. And so the issue was, well, what do we do with situations like this? What do you do with, with these kinds of circumstances? We have our own set of taboos in um, 20th century, 21st century American Christianity. And often these are just things that are uh, values that are set up by the culture or sometimes they're set up by a legalistic form of Christianity It doesn't have anything to do with the Bible or grace whatsoever. But because we understand that somebody's coming out of this background, somebody has that kind of problem, we're just not going to make an issue out of it. That's the idea related to the law of liberty is we have the freedom to participate in some things. But because of the law of love that's described in this chapter as well, we choose not to, so it's not an issue until this other believer can uh, become a little better educated in, in spiritual truth. It used to always bother me when I was younger that seems like everybody's always concerned about this, this weaker brother and putting a stumbling block in front of me There were two things that always stuck with me. I, I remember Dr. Ryrie made a comment on this and I think I heard him speak about a year or two before I went to seminary and he said, for somebody to stumble, they have to be moving. Most of the legalistic Christians that are out there that make an issue out of some sort of gray area aren't moving. Their feet are stuck in the concrete of legalism, and they're not going anywhere. So as soon as you have a good scotch, have a beer, or sit down and enjoy yourself, or whatever it may be that violates their standards, you haven't caused them to stumble. They're like a Pharisee. They're just looking for issues. They're not going anywhere. And then I remember a, also remember a cover on Moody Monthly. Moody uh, Bible Institute has all, produced this uh, monthly journal called Moody Monthly. And the cover said, Grow Up Weaker Brother. And both of those comments pointed out the fact that most people who claim to be the weaker brother aren't weaker. They're not younger, immature Christians who are going to somehow stumble in their Christianity. They're Christians who should know better and have chosen a path of legalism and are making issues out of non-issues and acting like they're weaker when they're really not. But the point in Romans 14 recognizes that there truly are people who have certain, uh, certain problems and that if you engage in certain kinds of activities or behaviors that are completely legitimate in front of them, uh, they can't handle it. They will use it as an excuse to go too far. Uh, for example, uh, what I think is a more overt example would be it's just fine, according to the Bible, to partake of alcoholic beverages. But if you sit down with somebody that you know is a, has a problem with alcohol, and can't control alcohol, and you sit down and you say, I'm going to give them a beer so they can understand that I'm grace-oriented, that's a violation. You are putting a stumbling block in front of that person. You know that's a problem. Uh, that's the idea that we have in with the law of love. that um, Paul says in verse 14, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So even though they have a screwed-up scale of values, we need to take that into account because of their spiritual condition. So verse 15, Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, uh, you're no longer walking in love. Uh, Don't destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. In other words, don't major on minor things. Don't make issues out of what you eat and what you drink when that's not the real issue. The focus is on righteousness and peace, joy, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit and spiritual growth. Verse 18, for he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore, verse 19, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which... One may edify another, and the word there for edify means to build up, to strengthen somebody spiritually. So that's the idea in edifying one another is being engaged in those conversations, those ideas, those actions that strengthen someone in their spiritual life, encourage them to go forward rather than create some sort of, of a speed bump on, their, on the road to their spiritual advance. Okay, that's the first seven points. We'll start with point eight next time, which will be to accept one another, Romans fifteen seven. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be challenged by these things, to think in terms of other members of the body of Christ, to think more highly of others than of ourselves, not just to think about who we are and what we're doing, not just to be oriented to our own circumstances, but to focus on the greater issue, which is your plan and purpose within the body of Christ and our spiritual growth and advance to glorify you. We pray that you would challenge us with the things we study in Christ's name. Amen.